This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and the Leadership Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For 25 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. How can government leaders enhance the customer experience in agencies they lead? What insights can government leaders learn from the private sector in doing just that? And what is the difference between managing tasks versus leading for results? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Scott Edinger, author of the new book, The Growth Leader. Scott, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. So, Scott, I really enjoyed reading your book, The Growth Leader. And I was wondering, the first question, obviously, is what is a growth leader and how can one become a growth leader? Well, I start with a premise here that leadership is about results, right? Like it does not take a great deal of leadership or not much leadership is required to maintain a status quo. So leadership Uh, starts with an assumption here that it is about results and creating some kind of positive and intentional change for your organization. Now, most of my clientele are in the commercial sector, not not all, but most. And in the commercial sector, that growth is often measured in things like revenue or net income, uh, number of products per customer. But it's also more qualitative measures like customer satisfaction as represented by a net promoter score or It could even be employee engagement of some kind, right? So it begins with this premise that it's not about the status quo. I don't need a whole lot of leadership for that. And leadership in terms of results, when you measure it, is usually about some kind of growth, some kind of expansion and increase, something getting better. And that's the premise behind the idea of a growth leader. How do you become one? The second part of your question I think, first of all, you got to decide what you are measuring qualitatively or quantitatively that is going to determine whether you are growing or moving in the right direction, right? There's the old phrase, if you're not growing, you're dying. Hmm. I mean, it's a great point when you just said something getting better. And as as we talked um, earlier, you know, I like to bring on thought leaders like yourself who can come in and help government executives or nonprofit leaders figure out what insights they have to offer that can make their agency or their organization's mission get better at doing it, at executing it. So, you know, much like the private sector, Scott, governments have put an emphasis on the customer experience, CX, as it's known. Uh, we see government agencies, you know, hiring chief customer experience officers. So they're getting the they're getting uh, the point here. And, and to that end, I'd like to get your insights uh, for leaders. 
who maybe are shifting focus and resources to enhance that customer experience within an agency they lead? Yeah, well, there is a great deal of focus on customer experience. The rise of the acronym CX alone in the last five or six years, you know, it's spawned magazines and conferences and newsletters and uh, a, a new horde of consultants uh, working on it. But I look at customer experience and there's something incredibly important that is often missing from customer experience. And that is what I'll call the sales experience. And I've often referred to the sales experience as the first mile of the customer experience highway, because if uh, if your customers or clients don't have a good experience, a valuable experience on that first mile, they'll get off at exit one and have a customer experience elsewhere. So the notion of customer experience often focuses on everything that happens after we are selected, after we earn the business, win, selected, get a proposal, whatever it is, and making that part of the customer experience, once they have made the decision to pay for our services, become uh, you know uh, a client, begin working with us. And it's the front end of that experience where the decisions are being made about what to buy, what to implement, how to configure before it's actually occurred, that there is so much value able to be captured. And if you can win that part of the experience, which again, most customer experience efforts fail to consider, they often focus on how do we deliver efficiently and make the the user experience simpler or easier, instead of at the front end, at the point where decisions are being made as to whether or not I'm going to have a customer experience with you at all, that that is an opportunity to create a lot of value. And some of the research I highlight in the book says that's 25% of the factor of whether I'll actually even become a customer, um, second only to what you actually offer. Great point. So, you know, I found it interesting in your book, um, you you point out that, uh, you know, growth leaders or leaders that are in that milieu can help a, a customers with problems they don't see or don't even know exist. And I think that's very powerful in the, even in the government context with, 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 you know, no wrong door concept and what have you. So how can growth leaders help their customers with such problems? And if they don't see them or don't even realize they exist. Yeah. Well, but, but whatever you are offering, whatever you are providing, whatever capabilities you are bringing, you have a unique perspective because you've seen the movie of implementing your stuff whatever that is, hundreds of times. So you see the common mistakes, right? You see the common errors that are overlooked, the assumptions that are made that are either incorrect or the implications to issues that customers think are, ah, oh, that's no big deal. But then you're like, no, no, what, what you're talking about, it has wide ranging ripple effect and impact on you. So your ability to create value is about being able to provide that insight and to help them to see issues that they hadn't seen or, or more likely that they had seen, but they thought were small and incidental and engage in a conversation about that using your expertise, your experience, your vantage point of you know best practices where you've seen implementation succeed or fail. And that moment of helping them to see, oh, there's a different way to do this that could be better. Uh, that moment of helping them to see, oh, wow, there's I, I hadn't considered going about it that way, 
whatever that starts to look like. I think we've all had that experience, right? Uh, we've all watched people make the same mistake. It's like, oh, come on. No, there's a better way to do it uh, with my stuff, whatever that is, your capabilities, your products, your solutions, whatever you're wanting to call them, right? So the ability to create that value and bring that insight is about engaging in a conversation directly. And um, and that that's where the real value is in that. Yeah, you know, I found uh, you, your book is chock full of interesting anecdotes and uh, really approachable insights. And you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about because I'm, I'm I'm a big David Mamet fan. So you you mentioned Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and I was wondering what is the curse of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? Oh, yeah. Well, who can forget Alec Baldwin? If you're old enough, right? Like, you know, <laughs> we've heard Alec Baldwin saying, you know. Uh, first place is a Cadillac, second place, set of steak knives, third place, you're fired in the sales contest, right? And what's his mantra? Always be closing. So the, what I call the curse of Glengarry Glen Ross is to think about sales as pitching and closing, which used to be somewhat valuable, right? Like customers got their information from salespeople and then um, you know made, made the decisions uh, either through multiple interactions or just one. But the fact of the matter is, is that sales is a very different animal today. Uh, the profession has changed dramatically in terms of what success looks like. It's more what I was talking about a moment ago when we talked about helping customers to see issues they hadn't considered or solutions they hadn't thought of on their own or helping them to see a, a wider range of impact in, in what they're trying to do not closing. So, um, but still that stigma, I write about this in the book, right? There's a stigma about sales. Uh, if you're listening here, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's pushy, it's pitch and close. It's like, come on, get, get away from me. So nobody wants to be closed. When I talk with executives and they say, what I really need is some closers. I'll often say, well, Tell me about the last time you you had a sales meeting with a really aggressive closer. You know, like how how did that feel? Did it feel like it was your best interests? Did it feel like it really was going to make a difference for you? And that stigma, that curse of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, as I write about, uh, has stayed with sales. And what's most most uh, difficult about it is that it influences what we think good selling looks like, and it influences in the wrong direction. Excellent point. You know, one of the things I liked about your book, Scott, is that it, you offer some really interesting, um, clever, uh, you know, practices and application. And one of them was the five flag start fr framework. I'm wondering, how did you develop it? And what inspired its creation? How does it provide a process for translating ideas into actions, and then ultimately into good decision making? Yeah, well, uh, that five flag start framework is uh, at its core. It is a strategy model. The five flag start was, you know, so I use that metaphor and won't go into all of the detail around that. But it's a strategy model. I, I point out in the book one of my favorite quotations is from a statistician named George Box: "All models are wrong. Some are useful." That's particularly true of consultants' models here. So I, I tried to make this strategy model useful, and the the first three elements of it. And I have been doing strategy consulting for, for many years. So the common threads through most strategy models, whether you've read A.G. Laffley or look at McKinsey strategy models or uh, Michael Porter, they, they have some common threads through them. 
And those common threads represent the first three points here, which are often, what are you trying to achieve? What are the objectives? What's the ideal market? You know, who's your ideal client profile there? Who do you want to be working with? And then, of course, what's your competitive advantage? Why, why customers would choose you? The issue that um, I see, regardless of whose strategy model you might adopt, is the lack of clarity and uh, crispness, absent corporate speak in answering those questions. So in this five flag model, I try to encourage the, the clarity around that. And then I, I add a couple of things into the model to create something that I, I hope will be wholly different. The fourth question, that fourth flag, I bring in this idea of sales experience, recognizing that it is not just your competitive advantage in what you offer, but how you offer it makes a difference. That's true of customer experience, sales experience. It's not just what we provide, it's how we provide it that can be a differentiator. So I like to bake that into the strategy. And then the fifth flag that is, again, differentiating here is that we create a bridge to execution. I've often said that you know you, your strategies exist in corporate boardrooms, uh, often created at retreat centers or resorts where the leaders are well-fed and well-cared for. And I've never seen a strategy succeed there, right? They always look good there, but you can't get there by declaration. So that fifth flag really focuses on how do you create that bridge to execution? How do you define what you're going to do in order to execute that strategy and define it in a way that it is unequivocally understandable? So Scott, as a follow-up, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to dig deeper into each one of these uh, aspects of the five flags, but I was also wondering... Maybe you could share with us a vignette of the five flag start framework in sort of application. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to dig in on uh, the fourth flag, which is the most differentiating point on it. And I use a client example that some people listening to this podcast might be familiar with the, the client organization. It would be L3 Harris, big government contractor. And um, I work with the commercial aviation division. Uh, they're, they're not selling much into governments a little bit, but they're making a big shift in that business. And it's really focused on moving from selling flight recorders and flight simulators and training and avionics equipment, right? Things that we're familiar with for the airline industry and putting flight information and data analytics that they can extract from those products and create a data analytics service to provide flight information. Well, here's the scoop with that. Having the capability is a technical competitive advantage. And of course that needs to be built, but that fourth question, that fourth flag about the sales experience, how does the sales experience create value? Well, here's the rub when you have that kind of capability. You can't just sell it to the procurement people. You can't just sell it to the same people buying flight simulators or training programs or avionics equipment. That has to be sold to a C-suite executive who's trying to create some kind of positive change in their business. It may be to improve safety. It may be to reduce emissions. It may be uh, to improve on-time delivery or impact financial metrics. But whatever it is, that sales experience has to make a shift. Not only does L3 Harris commercial aviation systems need to make a shift in what they sell, but they need to attend to that fourth flag, how we sell it, makes as much of a difference because 
just having it, just having the great products and services around data analytics and flight information to tack onto those products is not enough. They need to create, to design, to deliver a compelling sales experience that allows customers to access it. What insights can government leaders learn from the private sector in doing just that? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Scott Edinger, author of the new book, The Growth Leader. Scott, you identified some key behaviors that create a growth-focused culture. I was hoping you could highlight some of those behaviors. Yeah, well, I think, you know, in the spirit of getting to those behaviors, I'd offer that when we talk about growth-focused culture, (laughs) um, that culture is essentially the beliefs that shape behaviors. And by the way, that's probably your shortest culture definition ever from a consultant, beliefs that shape behaviors. Uh, And part of the reason I share that here is because whatever executives in particular believe about sales, and this is where that curse of Glengarry Glenn Ross and all of that stigma idea that we were talking about a few minutes ago come in. If you believe that you need closers, if you believe that you need uh, people to pitch, if you believe that there's a certain personality about sales and that it is not about delivering value or insight or sharing expertise in a way that's meaningful for customers. But if you share that sort of old definition of selling, well, that informs a great many decisions and actions and behaviors that you would uh, make assumptions about for sales from who you recruit, how you develop them, how you manage them, how you measure them, how you compensate them, everything in between, right? So if I were to take just one of the simple behaviors, like how do we measure sales? Well, if we only pay attention to revenue, right? Or um, business closed in this quarter or profit or whatever your, your metric is, well, then you miss so much of the strategic effort around creating value for customers in a way that differentiates you. So there has to be more. And usually the issue is that we think too narrowly about sales and the behaviors that it influences are everything from, again, who we recruit, how we train them, how we manage them, how we measure them, how we compensate them. Yeah. So, Scott, you compare the results of the sales of, of sales leadership data with the data from leaders of other functions, and you came up with 
you identified six core competencies. I was wondering if you could highlight some of those competencies. Yeah, I'm going to start with what was the one that was definitely first among equals, right? And um, when it came to being a growth leader, by far, the thing that matters most is the idea of understanding your customer. You could call that market insight, putting the customer at the center, as I do in the book, strategic focus, but understanding why customers buy from you, what makes them tick, and what their criteria are. This is something that um, when you look at those who are really focused on growth as a leader versus those who are not, this one stands head and shoulders above the rest. And it's a really simple prospect to this because 100% of your income comes from customers of some kind in most organizations. I grant you that there's uh, many different kinds of organizations, but your customers, for instance, if you are an association, those would be your members, right? Where is your revenue coming from? Understanding that. Beyond that, having a strategic perspective, right? It's like being able to look to the horizon and say, where am I going to take this organization? What are we going to do to get there? Where are we going? What are we going to provide? What's going to make us valuable? There, there's a, a third element here that I called leading for results. And I mentioned at the top of the conversation here, uh, leadership is about results. Those two things are inextricably linked because not a whole lot of leadership required for a status quo. So the mindset and focus around results. Uh, the last three that I'll mention are, you've got to be able to inspire and motivate people. I, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that because it's such a central theme in the book. But if you're not trying to get the best out of your people to inspire and motivate them to high levels of performance and get their best effort, uh, then then that's a huge miss. And then, of course, how do you develop others? Organizations don't exist in in a vacuum, right? You've got to be continually improving and getting better. That's a theme, of course, here. And then driving change, being able to collaborate and so forth. That's wonderful. So again, your book, The Growth Leader, um, identifies some other key insights and practices people could take. And I was wondering, one was around you know, inspiring and communicating. The growth leader needs to inspire and communicate. What are the three C's you identify around that? And can you list the essential characteristics of an inspirational leader, which I think is applicable throughout no matter what sector you're in? Sure. Well, the three C's come from Aristotle. Uh, I, I made this joke in the book. I thought it was funny, at least. I s remind people that I'm a, a communication and rhetoric major, but I'm trying not to inflict my rhetoric degree on you with this. But I saw something <laughs> in my research on what makes leaders inspiring and how they connect. And, and if you think about Aristotle's work from 2,400 years ago, in case you're not familiar with it, you've probably heard of ethos, logos, pathos, right? And uh, I modernize that a little bit when I talk about the three C's of inspiring. Ethos is about credibility, you know, like who you are as a leader, that makes a difference. Logos is about logic. And, and today I call that clarity, you know, how clearly you can articulate what you mean, the absence of corporate speak, the absence of equivocation that we see in so many leaders. And then the third C around modernizing pathos, emotion, and uh, making that connection, emotional connection, really. So those are the three C's. And I promise I won't mention Aristotle again, <laughs> but the three C's being about credibility, who you are as a leader, the clarity you bring, and then connection, how you engage others. 
And you asked me the second part of this question about, you know, what are the essential characteristics? When when I co-authored my first book, The Research for the Inspiring Leader, we looked at 20,000 leaders, close to a quarter of a million direct reports to say, what was it that separated excellent from average performance when it came to the ability to inspire and motivate? And the thing that bubbled right to the surface, number one answer, as we say on Family Feud, again, a dated reference, connection. It was actually at the time we were doing 360 data and evaluating those, the term was using emotions. And then we changed that to make some emotional connections. And whenever I share that in the context of leadership and inspiring and motivating others, I always have this caveat, like I always go out of my way to point this out. I'm not talking about wild displays of emotion or excessive emotionality, uh, oversharing, group therapy. None of this is about emotional connection. I'm talking about connecting with others as, novel idea here, people, fellow members of the human race. We all have emotions. And the reason this becomes so powerful, if you want to inspire and motivate and move others to high performance, is because... Old maxim here, logic makes us think, it's emotion that makes us act. You know, it's interesting. You spent uh, years helping companies in your profession, in your area, grow through a variety of economic conditions. I was wondering, what are some critical practices for strategizing amidst uncertainty? Yeah, well, I, I think if you consider that since March of 2020, we have been in a bit of survival mode from COVID to labor issues that uh, stemmed from COVID. And then we got hit with supply chain issues and then interest rates. And then this year, you know, you're slapped with a recession, no matter how deep it cut for you or did not. It was these are the issues that were there. And leaders were often in survival mode. And there's a time when that's necessary. But real leadership is not just about surviving. It's about thriving. And in business today, that means growth. Again, however you measure it, whether it be a revenue or net income, uh, whether it be employee engagement, member engagement, customer satisfaction measures, whatever that looks like. So part of it is, is a mindset around not survival, but thriving. And what does thriving mean for your organization? So on two levels, I would say, number one, you have to clarify what that road ahead looks for. You must have a strategic perspective. Now, there's a lot of things you know about the current state of the world and your business and your market. And of course, there's lots of things you don't know. There, you don't know if there will be another pandemic. You don't know what the global, you know, the global politics will look like if there's a war on the horizon, as we you know look at now. So, whatever these things look like. You have to be able to take those into consideration, but you can't let it freeze you and uh, knock you back into survival only mode. So you've got to be thinking about this by looking at the road ahead and thinking, what do we know? What do we not know? And how do we step up to lead through that? And then the second part here, I'd connect to what we were just talking about with Aristotle and take that a little bit deeper. You have to inspire others to go the extra mile. You have to get the discretionary effort for them. 
you have to get their best efforts. And if you're not doing that, then you're leaving money on the table, however you define what money on the table is in your business. You're leaving effort on the table. You're leaving opportunity on the table. And when I mentioned this idea about making an emotional connection, I, I want to just uh, double click on that and go a little bit further because I, I'm not suggesting that it's all got to be happy emotion, <laughs> right? There's there's a lot of value and enthusiasm and energy and excitement and and goodness. Leaders have to bring that. But if that's all you bring as a leader, then you're probably not being real. You're probably not being genuine about it because nobody has only happy emotions. And there's a wider range at your disposal. I just got done writing an article about how leaders use anger in business. And the issue with this is that anger can be hugely productive. But the problem is, is that leaders over-index on it or misuse it. They're either too angry or they don't use it effectively. They become hostile or aggressive or you know yell or sort of be the, the jerk boss. When instead, if a leader can think about for a moment, well, what am I angry about? What am I concerned about? What are we afraid will happen if we don't take action? What am I worried about for this organization? And then use that as a way to connect with others versus just getting angry, spewing anger, like you know, you're a volcano or something, and then repelling others. You can use anger, again, emotional connection to draw others in, to see the gravity of a situation, uh, to refocus effort, to be serious about it. Other emotional connections include how you find yourself concerned with your people. Do you invest in their development? Do you, do you go the extra mile to coach them and help them to become better in their careers, to help them to advance? So there are myriad ways that leaders can use that emotional connection. But the combination of a strategic perspective, where are we going and what are we doing to get there? Along with that, in the context of we're not just going to survive, we're going to thrive, is a wildly powerful combination. Scott, I was wondering what prompted you to do the article, if I got that right, around, you know, leveraging anger as a leadership principle? You know, it's interesting. I'm in a credit saint at 48 PR, my PR firm. And as they were combing through the book, they found the section on emotional connection and using emotional connection as the key to inspiring and motivating others. And within that section, there's this reference to anger can be used productively too. And uh, she brought that to my attention. She said, I think you've got bigger bigger content here with this one. So she encouraged me to write that article and it'll be published, I believe, in Smart Brief on Leadership in the next week or two. But um, the, the, the power of this concept isn't just anger. I, like, I have this joke back and forth with her. It's like, listen, I'm, I'm not telling people to be angry. I don't want to write an article that says, go be angry. In fact, I'm saying like, the problem is, is that there's too much anger and not enough introspection about how to use the anger. Uh, and that's what the article is about. But the point of the whole thing is that we're not robots. We're not task-focused automatons. We're people. So we relate to each other as people, and that means emotion. I I always have to go out of my way. I said it earlier. It's like not wild displays, and I'm not talking about group therapy or a lot of touchy-feely stuff. I'm talking about being a real person. I get frustrated about things. That's important. I get excited about things. That's important. I'm concerned about things. I have my attention that's on things that are important to me because they matter. None of this is logic. That's all emotional connection. 
And we work together that way. And that makes a huge difference in how leaders inspire and motivate and get the best out of their people. Great insight there. You also come up with, Scott, um, a model called magnets and milestones. And I have to admit, I love the I love the metaphor. And I, I, I was hoping you could explain to us um, what it is, how can leaders apply it to their strategy execution? Well, the genesis of magnets and milestones, I'll start with that for just a, a quick story. I have this conversation with a CEO and a COO who are telling me about projects with hundreds of what they call work streams. This is with another consulting firm, hundreds of work streams, and they're sitting in multiple days every month just hearing readouts, telling them what had happened, what's what, what we've done on these things. And I thought, this is a, a horrible way for executives to spend their time. And there's a huge thirst for sort of KPIs and management metrics uh, to solve many problems. And I'm not against any of them. My, my offer here with magnets and milestones is that you can simplify the process. If you focus on your big initiatives or projects, we'll call them magnets. I'll get to that in a second. And what are the milestones that lead you towards them? When I talk about the magnets, when I write about the magnets, I use a quotation that I'm fond of to illustrate something, and that is a problem well-defined is half-solved. Yeah, One of my favorite quotations, uh, Char Charles Kettering from GM. And if you think about that, the value in getting clear and precise so that there is no equivocation on what is going to be, what is the issue we're addressing? Well, if I think about most projects, most initiatives in companies, they're vague. They're like a bullet point. You know, if you've ever been in those meetings where you have the flip charts and we capture ideas, lots of bullet points, and then you look at them a few days later and you're like, what were we talking about at that meeting? What, what does this even mean? There are so many projects inside organizations that lack precise definition about the outcome and what success looks like. I thought if you can create magnets, if you can magnetize those projects or initiatives or whatever you want to call them with that kind of precision and clarity, well, then there's no, no chance for people to misunderstand what you need them to do, what good looks like. And you don't have to get these constant readouts and hear progress updates on what they're doing. It's like, go get after that and then tell me where we are against our progress. And that's where milestones the companion comes in. I think about milestones not as tasks, not as updates, not as things to be done, but as measures of progress that indicate success toward the magnet. I like to ask that question, you know, how would you know it if you tripped over it? What would reflect progress? Don't tell me all the hundred things, all of the hundred things that need to be done next week. But what's the next milestone of progress that tells us we're on track? These things are harder to create than it sounds. But the combination of these magnets and milestones give leaders a chance at the 30,000-foot level to stay engaged, to not abdicate strategy execution and all the things that need to be done, but to be engaged at a meaningful level so that they can lead for results, not get drawn into the management of tasks. That's a great point. You kind of touched on it, but I was wondering if you could dig a little deeper uh, on how a leader can create powerful magnets. How can we do that? Yeah, well, I think number one is to, and it's so deceptively hard. I mean, I work with leaders on this all the time. What does good really look like? What does finished look like on this project? 
How would you describe that? And to do so with a clarity about it that doesn't just resonate with an investor or in a board meeting or with senior managers, but at your front lines. Uh, I, I like to ask this question when I'm talking with leaders about it, like, how would you describe this to me? Like I'm your friend from high school who is not a part of your business and doesn't know anything about it. If you can do that, then you're well on your way to getting powerful magnets, that kind of clarity. The the other thing that I suggest is to reduce the number of them. So if you really want to create powerful magnets, you can't have 100. You can't even have 10, really. I think organizations, Edinger's rule here, very scientific coming up, uh, five plus or minus two. That's about what leaders can manage at each level. So if the senior team has that, then that cascades to the next level, level beneath them. So that's the other part here. I, I call that getting the, you know, sort of reducing the number and driving the focus. I'd rather, if you really want to create magnets and you really want them to pull you, you know, you could sort of get this idea that we're being pulled towards it because it's so clear, so precise, and so focused. And there's only a few of them. That's what allows us to advance a handful of the most important priorities by miles instead of 50 of them by inches. What is the difference between managing tasks versus leading for results? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on this special edition of the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center of This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring leadership with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. So Jacqueline, according to your work, why must leaders start with self-leadership in order to be more effective? What we found is that, again, getting back to so many different leadership development programs, is they'll often do 360s and often give you a whole bunch of data and feedback around how people perceive you. And that can be useful and that's important, but it doesn't necessarily help you in terms of what do you actually do with that? And so, and it's a great, another great story in the book, uh, Vincent, who is the CEO of, of New West Bank, um, coming out of California, and he talked about how for him, his leadership journey was, he's again, a very successful guy, and, and from his perspective, very self-aware. And what he realized was that although people could articulate the behaviors that they found either challenging or, or helpful or not so helpful, for him, it really wasn't until he went into the mind, his own mind, that he could actually see what they were talking about and make the changes. And I think it really gets into one of the things that I think is really exciting is that our researchers have now shown that our brain is plastic. So we can rewire our brain. The other thing that we know is that it's hard to do. We, especially as we age, we get 
pretty set in our ways, including set in how we see the world and how we think about things. And so for a leader that is really committed to making a change, it's more than just, yeah, you know, Michael, people see you maybe as not the most collaborative leader. What do you do with that? And what we believe and what we've seen is that what you need to do with that is you need to actually dive in, not just self-awareness, but really awareness of how your mind works and how you can actually, by understanding your mind better, then to be able to better lead your mind better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, in your book, um, you come up with the MSC leadership uh, model, as I would like to refer to it, and obviously mindfulness is, is the first quality. And you talked a little bit about it earlier. But I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't delve a little deeper. What is mindfulness and how does it relate to managing, really managing one, one's attention? And what are the two qualities that make mind, mindfulness happen? Yeah. So basically mindfulness, the simplest definition is being here now. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to being unfocused, as opposed to being distracted, which is the first quality, so this quality of being focused, being fully present, Mm -hmm. the second quality of being aware. And really what awareness means is I'm aware of what's going on in my external landscape, but really being aware of what's going on in my internal landscape so that I'm not just falling um, into habits and habitual behaviors. And I'm also, to the extent that I can be, and that's a really important phrase, to the extent that I can be, aware of how I might be driven by ego biases, which you talked about earlier, or other biases, which we know so many of our biases are based on unconscious ways that our brain tells us, that person doesn't look like you, you should be afraid of them. And we have to be able to overcome that. So what mindfulness actually does is mindfulness enables you to be present with your own mind and to be able to have the opportunity to cultivate greater focus so that your mind isn't susceptible to wandering, which our minds naturally wander, but in our workplaces, it's even worse. And then secondly, the mindfulness training, and there's two different types of training that you do to develop focus as opposed to the other type of training, which is to really be able to open your awareness to the landscape of what's going on in your mind. So how is self-awareness, how is it the foundation of self-leadership? I mean, why is that the case? Well, and I would say it really probably speaks to both focus and awareness. One, if I'm not focused, so one of the things we talked about and we really saw with the successful leaders is this idea of survival of the focused. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, if you are not focused, and most of the leaders that we met, they were pretty darn good at focusing. But in addition to that, focus is not just about being able to focus on one thing and not multitask, which is a big part of why we're, many people are in and a, a big problem, and a big problem. Out, which I thought was fascinating. But in addition to that, this idea of mental agility, so being able to shift your focus, right? We talked about the complexity and why leaders are facing such challenging times today. What we really saw is leaders that could be agile in terms of how they shifted their focus. I'm here, now I'm here. That was amazing to us. And I think a really, and it's trainable. So that's really that quality of not just focus, but mental agility. 
But I would say in terms of self-awareness, the other thing, and just to give you another example of that, you know, self-awareness, one of the other CEOs that we spoke with, Mara McCaffrey, who is the CEO of Health New England, a health new, um, insurance agency. And what mindfulness really helped her do is she was able to start to see that oftentimes when she would walk into a leadership team meeting, she would be so enthusiastic about what she wanted to do and what she thought the organization should do that she left everybody else behind. Interesting. And so, but it, but she couldn't understand it because as a leader, I mean, that is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring the vision. You're supposed to bring enthusiasm. You're supposed to bring passion. But her passion bias actually made it more difficult for her to see other people weren't, they weren't on board. She was 10 steps ahead of them. And the mindfulness training enabled her to, one, realize, okay, that's what's happening. It enabled her to be able to slow down, to speed up, to really be able to take a couple steps back and say, okay, how do I need to show up differently to still get the same outcome, which is getting everybody on board and sharing the vision in a way that's going to be meaningful, but how do I need to show up differently to be able to help them get there so that they can create that journey for themselves as opposed to me just being off in the clouds from their perspective? So when you're providing uh, mindfulness training or leadership training, if you get a question from someone who's thinking, you know, it's really nice, it's aspirational to be a selfless leader. Yes. What are your suggestions about being a selfless leader but not being construed as a pushover? Well, it's back to, you know, training the mind. So what we know is that, again, you know, from neuroplasticity, we know that our mind can be trained. And so the key thing in terms of for a leader that genuinely says, I want to be able to bring more selflessness into my leadership, and I don't want to be a pushover, but I really want to be able to do that, it's, it's training. It's intention and then training. And at the same time, what you bring up is so important because – a pushover, like, that's not helping anyone. So if you just allow everybody to just walk all over you, you're not going to be a leader for very long. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Scott Edinger, author of the new book, The Growth Leader. You mentioned earlier that there is a difference between managing tasks and leading for results. And I, I want to I go a little deeper on that and, you know, maybe highlight even further the difference. But, but even more so, to what extent, Scott, can a leader think quickly if they focus too much on managing tasks rather than leading for results? Yeah. Well, here is a simple 
Maybe oversimple, but it works. Here's a simple uh, litmus test. If you're talking about how something should be getting done, you're getting into managing tasks. If you're talking about what should be done, well, then you're focusing on uh, leading for results, what we need to accomplish, what good looks like, what defines success. I'm painting a picture of this. We're moving towards it. I'm creating that magnet, right? That allows me to focus on the result, on the horizon, where we are going, use what kind of language. When you hear, how are we going to do this? Well, we've got a survey. We've got uh, this kind of analysis. Here are the 10 things we have. Well, then you're getting into how. So if you really want to have a the simplest test, and again, this is not perfect. In some cases, you'll find it oversimplified, but let's call it 80 to 90% of the time as at least a good diagnostic. Then your ability to say, when we're, when we're having conversations about how we're going to do something, we're getting into managing tasks. When we're having conversations about what we're going to do, we are leading for results. That's a great way to put it. Scott, uh, what are points of if or points of IF? What's, what, what are points of IF? Yeah. So this was um, part of the book that I enjoyed playing with, this points of if, IF. And it comes from the genesis here was this idea of something in engineering called predictive failure analysis. Uh, when you can look into a system and when you know what you are looking for, you can tell where something is going to fail, right? If anybody who has ever watched their kid try to play sports of any kind knows what I'm talking about here, right? But in any system, you can, you can tell before it happens where the points of failure could be, right? So I use this idea of predictive failure analysis that if in a business that is trying to grow, and of course, in the book, it's, again, a lot of commercial uh, language, but it's it's adaptable, I would say, 75% to non-commercial entities also. Uh, if you look clearly and look closely, those predictable failure points, if you address them and you address them early on before they have failed, well, then you can turn them into what I'd call a point of impact, positive impact. So a point of IF, point of impact slash F failure right? So I'm saying you can turn this around. And if you know what you are looking for, uh, in the same way that so many of you who are listening, know what you're looking for with your clients or your customers, you, you, you know what mistakes, when you look at them, you're like, oh, I can tell what they're going to do wrong if they go down this path. Similarly to the way that I look at organizations who are trying to grow, I can look at a half a dozen points here. I'm sure we'll get to some of them uh, and say, oh, if that's not addressed, that's a failure point. If it is addressed, that's a great point of positive impact for them. Points of if, IF. A couple of more questions, Scott, around it. And more importantly, what's the first step a, a leader could take to start applying your advice, the, the chock full of advice and the growth of a leader tomorrow? I, I think without getting too elementary, we are talking about a first step here. The first step is not always as obvious, but what does growth mean to your organization, particularly for listeners of your podcast? If it's not a revenue or a net income, which is a really obvious one for commercial leaders, but I will also highlight it's never the only thing. 
there's always something else that goes along with it, at least a couple of things. So what does growth mean to you? What does that movement out of the status quo, what does that movement towards something better, greater, more valuable mean for your organization? And what is it that you have to lead people toward? And I don't think that uh, you can uh, you could spend too much time really thinking about that. Once you have that, after that, if you have any kind of revenue or uh, dollars that flow into your business for your operating budget, that is from a customer, a member, someone that pays you to provide something, then if you're a growth leader, then you're going to shift your focus and spend a lot of time thinking about why they choose you and how do we provide value for them. Yeah, I was wondering if we could step back a bit, and I wonder, you know, what prompted you to write this book? How'd you come up with the title? And, you know, I know maybe you could share with us your intended audience, but do you hope to maybe even branch out to audiences that you may not have expected would be interested in some of the insight? Yeah, well, the the prompt comes um, m- many years ago, I was asked by a writing coach. Uh, her name's Sarah MacArthur. I mentioned her in the book. Um, and this is like forever ago when I was first starting to write articles for Harvard Business Review and the such. Um, she said, when you look out the window, what do you see that nobody else does? She says, if you write about that, you'll be a successful writer because um, then it won't be boring. <laughs> and um, I struggled with that for a while. But over time, what I started to see that I didn't think anybody else had, I wouldn't say nobody, but not many people were writing about is this huge disconnect between executives in the C-suite and the front lines of their business, particularly in commercial entities that rely on a sales team to interface with customers, drive revenue, and profit. When when that is the, the circumstance, I see this huge disconnect between what executives talk about their strategy being and the solutions they want to sell versus what actually gets sold at what margins to what customers. Now, part of the reason I saw that is because I had a 10-year stint in the sales training business. I worked for a guy named Neil Rackham, who wrote a book called Spin Selling and another one called Rethinking the Sales Force. And um, I I found the sales training business among the most frustrating on the planet. I joked with clients that this is the most frustrating business in the world because nobody's happy. (laughs) Uh, Salespeople come to sales training and they'll be like, hey, this is great training, but but two things. Number one, it's a lot harder than any in my anybody in my company thinks it is. And two, I'm not managed this way. I'm not managed to be consultative. I'm not managed to be solutions. It's a hit a number at all costs and be done with it. And then executives are frustrated because they spent hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on training. And they're like, hey, uh, you didn't change my sales team into totally different people after three days. So the disconnect between sales and the front line and what they do from the C-suite started to become really vivid for me. And uh, and when I see that lack of alignment, uh, I realize that when you can bring those together through strategy, leadership, and a focus on the sales experience, well, then you've got a path to growth that creates a competitive advantage, not just in what you sell, but how you sell the sales experience. That is very hard for others to replicate. So that's my my uh, longer answer for what prompted to write the book. 
what's next? Uh, what do you intend to, how do you, are you just promoting it? What's next for you in terms of the book? And perhaps, I don't know, do you have any other um, articles or insights uh, that, that kind of complement the insights you put into the book? Well, I've written about 40 or so articles for Harvard Business Review, another for uh, another 50 or so for Forbes and Chief Executive and other places. They are all on my website. Uh, I know direct people there, but it's scottedinger.com. You can see the entire article archive. And I would say most of my articles directly address all of the topics we come to today. I've had this book in mind. I've got notes on this book since dating back to 2014. Um, So uh, the articles that I've written along the way are sort of like uh, stones in, in, in the water here. Uh, that you can walk across to get to the the end of the road here. Uh, they they each contribute a little bit either to the research or the concept or the idea. So uh, that's where you can go for the rest of them. So how can folks get a copy of your book, The Growth Leader? Well, I smile and say anywhere books are sold. Uh, most people will, of course, go to Amazon. It's where we buy everything today. But I'm not. I get it. I get no, no nothing special from Amazon. You get it on Barnes and Noble. You get it on Goodreads. Um, Literally any place you can buy a book online, you can probably order it. You can also go directly to my website and pick your retailer of choice. I think I got the five biggest ones uh, that are reflected there. You can click on them. But if you go to scottedinger.com, my name, I I make a living based on being easy to find. Like I don't want, it should not be hard to find me. (laughs) Um, But if you go there, you can, and by the way, the hundred articles I mentioned there are, are they're all there for free as well. So, um, if you like the topic on anger, there's a there's a article for Harvard Business Review I did recently called um, "Motivating Others Is About Building Emotional Connection." Um, there's there's articles on if your teams are having trouble selling solutions, if you're trying to create new strategies. Well, you name the topic that we talked about: leadership, strategy, execution, results. It's there. Mm. Terrific, Scott. I want to thank you for for joining me today, Scott. It was a real pleasure getting your insights. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I, I will say this, your audience here on the Business of Government Hour, whether you are leading a commercial entity or not, uh, if you read the book with an eye on how does this relate to my growth, I, I think there will be something there for you. I certainly hope there is. If there isn't, tell me. And, uh, you know, that'll be the next one. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Scott Edinger, author of the new book, The Growth Leader. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Eng presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.